It's time again for the Mortgage Minute with Doug Krause, brought to you by Financial Residency. Doug has been a mortgage lender for over 20 years and specializes in physician loans. He is with BMO Bank and wrote a book called The Hippocratic House to educate physicians on home loans. You can request your free copy at DougKrause.com. You can call or text Doug anytime at 816-728-3631 or email him at doug.kraus at bmo.com. Now, get ready for today's episode of the Mortgage Minute. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Doug Kraus. Just want to go over loan estimates with people again and maybe just briefly coincide with closing disclosures because basically... A loan estimate is the lender's version of the closing disclosure up front. Used to be called a good faith estimate. Now it's made into a more complex three, four pages long, and it has certain guarantees the lender has to meet, where before the good faith estimate was just that. Good faith, no obligation to actually do any of it. Whenever you get to closing, everything's kind of transposed over from a loan estimate to a closing disclosure, and that's your final number. So the estimate's the one you get up front and the closing disclosure at the end. So I just kind of want to go through the pieces of it to break it down a little bit. So section A is origination charges, and this is where the lender fees go. So whenever a lender's charging an underwriting and processing discount points or origination points, all of it goes in this section. and Unfortunately, I personally think lender credits should also go in this section because that offsets the fees you're paying to the lender if you're getting a credit, but those actually go in section J, so that can become confusing. For instance, if you, well, I'll just give you an example of my bank. We have an 1150 underwriting and processing fee. And every lender or every borrower rather is going to pay that because it's fair lending that we're not going to charge that to some and not others. If we want to offset that, then certain criteria loans, we give credits for size of the loan or type of loan, for instance, being a purchase loan, we give credits where we don't for refinance and that can change daily if they wanted to, but that's just on a quarterly basis. We give an incentive because my bank wants purchase business. So Anyway, we're going to charge the 1150 and that goes in that section. Now, if you were buying a rate that's below market, and by that I mean talk to your lender and they tell you the rate quote 6%, you say, I don't want to pay that. I want five and three quarters, or you're going to pay discount points. And those discount points go in section A as well. Just like those fees, though, there are lender credits or rebates. And again, I feel like they should go in this section to make it much less confusing, but they also go in Section J. Certain lenders will put them in Section A, but I think the bulk of the industry does put it in Section J. So if you had a market rate of six and you said you wanted five and three quarters, you're going to have to pay some form of points, discounts. That's going to go in Section A, but if the market's rate six and you said, hey, I don't want to even pay the 1150 I want to get a lender credit of $2,000, then you're going to get a lender rebate and you're going to get that by taking an above market rate, just like you could buy down the rate. Some lenders will let you take an above market rate and then pay you to take it. Some lenders will put that in section A, but most put it in section J. So it becomes a little bit confusing whenever you're looking for your credits and trying to 
look at it. But the reason they do that is for APR purposes. Whenever a lender has lender fees, such as the underwriting processing discount, stuff like that, and even per diem interest, which is also going to be in a different section, but all of those affect your rate, APR rate. And so they they have to have those specific fees. But that's again why I feel like they should offset them directly and show just the difference because your APR is actually going to be over-disclosed if you're showing that you're counting an $1,150 fee in underwriting fee and discount, but then the lender gave you a $2,000 credit, say, because it was a purchase loan, then your real net lender fees are negative $850. But for APR purposes, it's being calculated as though you're paying $1,150 and you're not getting the credit for the $2,000. So Anyway, that number is a number that has no tolerance on the loan estimate. So section B is third-party fees, the appraisal. Those do have a little bit of a tolerance. I think it's 10%, but they're going to do a best effort, but they're also allowed to redisclose if those change. For instance, lender quotes you a rate of $500 for an appraisal. And then we go out and shop it to an AMC and the AMC comes back and says, Hey, this is going to be $1,200. Then we can change that fee and charge you the $1,200, but we have to redisclose it to you. So there again, tolerance, some lenders, if it's under the tolerance, won't redisclose, but I think most do if it's very much of a difference at all. And then you're generally in section B also going to see stuff like the flood certificate. Every property is run against a flood database just to see if it falls in a flood zone, to see if it's got FEMA-required flood insurance or not. Credit report itself, tax service fees generally would go in Section B as well. And then if there was any credit repair or something like a, you know, looking at your credit and having a rapid rescore or something like that's going to fall in the same Section B. Section C This is actually going to be the bulk of your closing costs. Generally are the title related fees, depending on the purchase price. You know, it's usually a percentage of some sort of the purchase or loan amount. So the bigger the loan, the more expensive your title fees, the title company's closing fee for them to sit at the closing with you and do all the paperwork with you, as well as the recording fee, you know, that can sometimes be disclosed here, but Usually that would go in the taxes and government fees, which is a couple sections down, and that would have state tax stamps as well. And state tax stamps, I like to best describe them essentially as a sales tax by the government for taking out a mortgage. So, or potentially even just a purchase transaction period, even if you were a cash buyer. So whenever you're in certain areas, the county or state collect money from you as a home buyer. That's why I think of it more like a sales tax, if you will, but it's usually called state tax stamps. The next section after that is prepaids. The prepaids is made up of a couple things. You pay a whole year of insurance generally at the closing table. So you're going to see 12 month premium there. That's totally up to you. You go shop for who you want. And then one year is collected at the closing table. And this becomes a point of confusion for a lot of people. They're like, well, wait a minute, I pay my insurance a year up front, and then you're telling me I have to collect, you know, monthly too. So 
you're always collecting towards the next bill a year later when it's coming due. So you pay 12 months at the closing table, you fund your escrow account with a cushion, and that's the taxes and insurance that come in. That's generally speaking about two months. On paper, it won't look like that when you get to the closing disclosure, and I'll explain that in a second, but two months of taxes and insurance. So then between now and the next time your insurance is due, if you make 12 payments, the lender collects 12 months worth of escrow payments for your insurance. Same goes for taxes. Sometimes they're paid out two, three, even four times a year. So it doesn't work quite the same as insurance, but it's the same principle. So by the time the next time your insurance bill comes due, you started out with a two-month cushion. You've paid in 12 payments where now your escrow should have 14 months worth of taxes sitting in it. Then the insurance bill comes to the lender. The lender writes a check out of your escrow account, 12 months worth. That takes you back to a two-month cushion. The cycle starts over. You continue to do that until your loan's paid off. And then at that point, your escrow account would go away and you would just take over paying your taxes and insurance on your own. So per diem interest is another portion of the prepaids. And that basically amounts to... The day of closing through the end of that month, you pay the interest for that at the closing table. And the reason for that is, unlike renting, where you move in January 1, you pay January's rent, generally speaking, up front. Most, most of the time when you rent, you might even have to pay a couple months up front. Mortgages don't work that way. Mortgages, whenever you're borrowing money, if you closed on let's just use December 10th for a close date. When you close on December 10th, your first payment isn't actually until February 1st. February's payment includes an interest portion and that interest pays for January's interest. So the only way a lender gets whole for the money being used from December 10th through the 31st is to collect that at closing. So I see a lot of people, you know, want to push out and say, hey, I want to make my first payment like two months out, you're not really gaining anything other than you're not maybe making duplicate payments on both your mortgage and your rent. However, think about it this way. If you close on December 1st, there's going to be zero prepaid interest and one less month of taxes and insurance put into your escrow account because your first payment's going to start in January. And that means as we collect and fill your escrow account one month sooner, then we don't have to collect as much up front. If you close on December 2nd through the 31st, then your first payment is February 1st. So you're going to have to pay an extra month worth of taxes and insurance into your escrow account. And you're going to pay potentially 29 or 30 days worth of prepaid interest. So all you're really gaining by closing on December 1st versus December 2nd is, yes, you're moving your first payment from January 1st to February 1st, but your cash to close just went up by an entire house payment minus the principal portion of your payment. So let's say your payment PITI was $6,000, maybe five $600 of that is principal reduction. The rest of it goes to escrow or interest then all you really did was save $500 and you're not really saving anything. You're postponing when you're paying it. But effectively, 
pushing out that payment by 30 days just made your cash to close go up by almost that amount. So it didn't really accomplish what a lot of people think it will. So anyway, just wanted to kind of go through that and explain that a little bit as well. So your cash to close then is going to be made up of closing costs and prepaid. So the closing costs are the items we were just talking about, which is the lender fees, the appraisal, credit report, title fees, if there's a state tax stamp, anything like that's closing costs. And a lot of people think cash to close, they're looking at that as closing costs. And that's just not an accurate statement because you're going to pay prepaid interest and you're going to pay a first year homeowner's insurance. Well, if, even if you have no loan, you're still going to insure your house. So that first year of homeowner's insurance, that is part of your cash to close, that's not a closing cost. That's a cash to close number, but not a cost to originate a loan because you have to pay that whether you have a loan or not. So just differentiating the two. So whenever you're looking at closing costs, it's the items I said, when you're looking at cash to close, it's all the closing costs plus your prepays. And the prepays are made up again of three things. Per diem interest, which is the day of closing to the end of the month, daily interest times however many days you have there. First year homeowner's insurance, plus you're putting two months taxes and insurance in escrow account. So let's visit that for just a second. On a loan estimate, most of us like to put two months because that's what it's going to net and that's what it's going to look like and make the numbers accurate. In reality, if you close towards the end of the year, we might be showing 11 months going into your escrow account for taxes. But what's going to offset that is the fact the seller owes you from January 1 or the last time the taxes were paid up until closing, meaning if we collect 11 months in taxes, it probably means you're getting an eight or nine month credit from the seller at a lower place on your closing disclosure for their share of the actual tax bill. So hope that clarifies some of that. And then there's, you know, the, uh, other section H, and that's usually where you would see HOA transfer fees. Like if you have an HOA and they have a startup fee, or if the seller had already prepaid the HOAs for the whole year, and then you're taking over the HOA, you have to actually rebate them or make them whole because just like the tax prorations where they had to pay their share of the tax bill up until the day of close, because you're going to get the whole bill. The same would be true if they already paid the whole bill up front for HOAs, then you have to pay out them from the day of closing to the end of the year for the HOA that you're going to get to use and they don't. And then real estate commissions, those don't really affect the buyer, generally speaking, unless you're buying a for sale by owner or you agree to pay your realtor over and above. But it does a lot of times show up that Lenders aren't going to be privy to and know, you know, what your buyer's agency agreement is, because that's not part of your purchase contract. So we don't get that, but title does. And I see a lot of transactions where the realtors have a transaction fee of $395, $695. I mean, whatever that number is, that's going to show up because that's cash. That's going to affect your cash to close. So it has to be accounted for. If you agreed to pay it, then that could show up here. And this is also if you send bills to closing, for instance, you have a home inspection and didn't pay for it at time of service, and then that's something that needs paid, that would go in the section as well. And then finally, down in after that, other credits is Section J, 
that's where the lender credits usually come in with most lenders. Again, I'd love to see them in Section A, but that's not the way most do it. So if you are getting a lender credit for whatever reason, or if you're sometimes lenders do their rebate funds in that section versus Section A as well. So from here, then you move on down to the summaries of the transaction. And that's just where you actually do the accounting. You've kind of done all the debits and credits before you get to this point. And then when you get down to section K, that's where you list the purchase price, the closing cost, so then an added cost. So you start out with everything, the cash you need, which is pay for the house, pay for all the closing costs and all the prepaids. And then you get the adjustments of what the seller is going to pay on your behalf. You get the adjustments of if you've put earnest money into the transaction, which by the way, the earnest money is just a accounting transaction. It doesn't really affect your loan. Meaning if you, let's say you were doing hundred percent financing, if you buy something for 800,000, but put 20, 20,000 in earnest money in, that does not mean then you're going to get a $780,000 loan. You're still getting a hundred percent, meaning you borrow 800. That just means the 20,000 goes towards those other debit items, like the closing costs and prepaids. And then if your earnest money is larger than all of your closing costs and prepaids, then you just get the difference back. So you're getting credit for that. It's the same as if somebody asks you for an application fee or prepayment of the appraisal. That generally is a credit that comes back to you the same as your earnest money works the same way. So then on the loan estimate, you see the purchase price plus the closing costs minus the earnest deposit minus the loan amount. And that's where you come up with, hey, what's my cash to close going to look like? And then this document really is the early stages of a closing disclosure. And the closing disclosure is the final version. And usually you get two of those. You get an initial disclosure, which is mostly accurate. And it needs to happen three days prior to closing, three business days prior to closing. And then you get a final, which you know could be, depending on the timeline you're working, same or next day as the initial disclosure. It could come down as late as like the day before closing. And there's always little adjustments that are being made that a lender doesn't really have anything to do with, such as, again, last minute, the HOAs are calculated by title or the realtor fees or the any of the bills that you're sending to closing, all of those items aren't really loan related, but they do affect your cash to close. And that might be the difference between your initial closing disclosure and the final. So anyway, I hope that clears things up on the difference of fees on a loan estimate and how they carry over to a closing disclosure. You can always email me at doug.kraus at bmo.com if you ever have any questions and want me to look over one for you. Thanks. Talk to you next time.